This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. My name is Georgia Sweet. I'm a second year MBA student and a teaching assistant for Professor Stephanie Creary's course, Leading Diversity in Organizations. I'm excited to welcome you to the Leading Diversity at Wharton speaker series. Our moderator, Dr. Stephanie Creary, is an assistant professor of management here at the Wharton School. Professor Creary is an identity and diversity scholar, and her research focuses on the identity and diversity work that individuals and leaders engage in to improve the quality of relationships across differences at work. As many of you know, Professor Creary teaches a course, Leading Diversity in Organizations, to Wharton undergraduate and MBA students, and is the creator of the Leading Diversity at Wharton speaker series. Today, she will co-moderate our discussion in how to overcome the racial and gender gaps in entrepreneurial leadership and funding with several special guests. Our first guest and Professor Curie's co-moderator is Dr. Ethan Malik. Professor Malik is also an associate professor here at the Wharton School, where he studies and teaches innovation and entrepreneurship. He is also author of The Unicorn Shadow, combating the dangerous myths that hold back startups, founders, and investors, and his papers have been published in top management journals and have won multiple awards. Prior to his time in academia, Ethan co-founded a startup company, and he currently advises a number of startups and organizations as well. As the academic director and co-founder of Wharton Interactive, he works to transform entrepreneurship education using games and simulations. Our second guest is Melissa Bradley. Melissa is a co-founder of venture-backed Eureka, a community where small businesses gain access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses. She is also founder and managing partner of 1863 Ventures, a business development program that accelerates new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Melissa is a venture partner at NextGen Ventures, advisor to the New Voices Foundation and Fund, and a member of the Square and Forbes Small Business Advisory Team and the Target Accelerators Entrepreneurs Advisory Council. Melissa is also a professor at the McDonough School of Business at Georgetown University, where she teaches impact investing, social entrepreneurship, P2P economies, and innovation. Lastly, she is a co-founder and managing partner of Sidecar Social Finance, a social impact agency that provides impact investing advisory and capital service services to individuals, institutions, and social enterprises. And finally, our third guest is Frederick Gross. Frederick is a partner at Storm Ventures and a co-founder of Black VC. Black VC is the largest Black venture community in the U.S. and operates programs like Breaking Into Venture and the Black Venture Institute. After graduating from Stanford University with a BA in political science, Frederick spent the next two years as CEO of Stanford Student Enterprises, a nonprofit that provides real-world business experience for students and student entrepreneurs through student-run businesses and incubator and accelerator programs. As an investor, Frederick is focused on early-stage B2B SaaS and spends most of his time hunting for new opportunities outside of the Bay Area. Professor Malik, Melissa, and Frederick, thank you all so much for joining us today. And Stephanie, Thank without you. further ado, I will pass it over to you. Thank you so much, Georgia, for that wonderful introduction. And I just want to say that, um, Georgia, you have done such a phenomenal job pulling together this program today. Um, and I was just talking to someone earlier saying how much I'm going to miss when you graduate in May. And so I just wanted to say thank you for all of your work in, in making this happen. And, and certainly thank you to, to you, Melissa, Frederick, for joining us. We're so grateful to have you here to discuss your approaches to diversity, equity, and inclusion in the VC and startup world during these current times. Um, and also, thank you so much to my colleague, Ethan. As, as many of you who've been tuning into the series over the past couple of years know is I don't normally get a faculty collaborator. 
Um, but I am primarily a diversity, equity, and inclusion scholar and who works in organizational behavior in, in the field of management. And so many of, of the people who I've interacted with uh, in, over the years that I've been at Wharton have said, you know, why aren't you saying more about uh, startups? Why aren't you saying more about VC? And so my wonderful colleague, Ethan Mollick, um, rescued me. <laughs> he, he responded to the SOS and, and, and decided that he would, he would be game for, for being here with us today. So Ethan, thank you so much for not only helping to moderate, but also helping to lend your academic expertise on the topic of entrepreneurship to, to all of our guests today. So just a quick note for the audience before I dive into my questions. Uh, so we'll be taking questions from the audience later. Uh, so go ahead and please enter your questions in the Q&A window throughout our conversations. We're gonna monitor those questions and try to incorporate as many as possible toward the end of our, our time here in the structured discussion format. So I'd like to start by just uh, kicking us off to a discussion, really giving us the broad parameters of a conversation about overcoming the racial and gender gap in entrepreneurial leadership and funding, which is certainly the title of our, of our talk here today. Uh, Melissa and Frederick, when you, you both founded ventures focused on supporting underrepresented entrepreneurs, uh, can you share with us a little bit about what prompted you to start these ventures and how they've transformed since their founding? Melissa, why don't we start with you? Sure. Well, thank you for having me. And I'm honored to be here with both you and Ethan. Obviously, my new friend, Frederick, we spent a lot of time together trying to solve these issues. So my foray into this space was because of a personal experience. Um, I started a financial services company many years ago. Just the fact that I said financial services, not fintech, just speaks to my age and how long ago. And I went to a governmental agency uh, that I think people would find obvious to ask for help. And they told me there was no way in the world I could get funding because I was black. I was a female and they didn't know any successful black women in financial services. And luckily, my mom was sitting on my left shoulder. And so I walked out patiently. I screamed when I got in the street and I said, I'll be doggone. Slightly different words. If I make this, I will never have this happen to someone else. And, and I realized that in that moment, part of the challenge was not just the general isms that I think we face as a country and are a much larger hurdle, but that one, there was no precedent. or So there was, there was an inability to kind of pattern recognize that I could be successful. Two, she made the comment that I was in debt. And I basically said, no, shoot, Sherlock, because I just graduated from Georgetown coming from a single parent home. And so there was, again, this lack of access to capital. And I said, there's got to be a way to solve these. And that was really the beginning of this journey. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, Frederick, what about you? What prompted you to start doing what you're doing, um, these ventures, investing, and, and sort of how has that transformed for you since their founding? Yeah. yeah. Well, first of all, you know, thank you so much for creating the space here, for inviting myself and, and Melissa to, to join you and, and Professor Malik. Uh, this is just such a, an incredible opportunity uh, and conversation we should all be, be you know, having uh, in, in more concentrated and focused ways. So, so thank you for that. Um, you know, in, in terms of like my way and path to sort of getting into all of this, you know, it really was sort of a falling into venture in some ways and, and having a mentor kind of push me to think about this ecosystem as a place that I could actually grow in. And, and then starting to unpack questions around like, why wasn't I looking at venture? What had led me to think about that as an opportunity? Um, and then as I got into venture and spent my first year sort of doing the work that a lot of folks do in that first year, trying to build relationships, trying to build out some mechanism of this pattern match that Melissa's talking about and starting to realize that this very notion of pattern matching itself was creating a dynamic that was actually hurting uh, founders that look like me from 
getting to the doorstep, and then more importantly, actually getting through in the door and getting capital, um, not only you know, in, in most loans. And so the question became, what can I do to, to help change that? And how can I defer to action versus just sort of throwing my hands up in the air and saying it's the way it is? Um, and obviously, you know, that's been a, a big part of the story with Black VC and the work I, along with a lot of others, have done uh, with, with that initiative. Yeah. So um, I want to talk a little bit more about your your respective um, entities, 1863 and Black VC, as well as the numerous other collectives that you all are, are in charge of. And I certainly became acquainted with this conversation because as a person who um, does research on the topic of diversity, equity, inclusion, I, I start looking at all the headlines uh, related to inequity uh, and bias and discrimination in the world of work. Uh, and so for me, I think about this as fundamentally a work-related issue, but also a leadership issue as well. And so can we just for, for a moment dive a little bit more deeply into the racial, the question of racial and gender gaps? When you're thinking about the racial and gender gaps in venture capital and startup worlds, um, what are some of the unique issues faced? Let's talk about the investor side and on the founding side as well. We've already started talking a little bit about the founding side, but I think it's worth repeating. Uh, Frederick, let's go to you. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, a lot of my work is focused on the the venture side, right? And and sort of, you know, the history of Black VC was, you know, us as a community of Black venture investors saying, hey, you know, there's been a lot of effort and conversation around pipeline issues with respect to founders and the challenges founders go through. But are we spending enough time looking at the relationship that capital has to the success of those founders making their own roads and the diversity that might not be so so prevalent on the venture side and how that plays out? fundamentally, especially in a community that's predicated on networks and relationships being the currency that moves things around. So, you know, we started to look out, you know, one of the things we saw when we did a, a data analysis of the entire ecosystem now a couple of years ago is that in the Black community only represented 3% of the entire venture landscape. Um, in, in a world where, you know, in the United States, at least, we represent, you know, close to 13% of the population. Um, and one of the things we started to realize is that lack of penetration on the venture side fundamentally just meant that, like, you might not have in your personal network VCs that could actually help you navigate that whole early stage ecosystem of getting a startup from ideation to funding to, you know, actually building out go to markets and product. Um, but 3%, you know, is, is a dismally low number. And when you actually back up the numbers, I mean, we're talking about less than 400 you know, institutional venture investors in the United States. Uh, and as you carve that and unpack it, you're looking at individuals that can write meaningful check sizes. You actually are looking at sub 100 individuals. Um, and that's in, you know, 2021, which is, you know, certainly not, not where we want it to be. Absolutely. Uh, Melissa, uh, can you talk a little bit more about some of the issues that um, you see that are, that are important to talk about when we're thinking about these gaps, both on the investor side and on the founding side? Yeah, I'll take a look at both because for better or for worse, I, I applaud Frederick. I have I have been a venture capitalist before and thought I would never go back. Um, it's part of my gray hairs, and I'm sure Fred had hair before he entered into the space. It's rather stressful for those who want to get into this space. But but 1863 Ventures really started um, out of a bet with the District of Columbia, where we're based, that said, you're, you're missing the mark by over-investing in micro-entrepreneurs and not recognizing that the majority of Black businesses in the District of Columbia were actually significant job creators. And I was getting that anecdotally. <clears throat> and when we finally put on a conference, actually put on by my students at Georgetown, 
we surfaced three different things. Um, that one, there was a plethora of support for startup entrepreneurs, but not those who had actually were trying to grow and scale their business. And dare I say, there are two very different mindsets and, and different skill sets. You can acquire them, but they're not the same. The second thing is from a city perspective, there was an overinvestment in micro enterprises and where the expectation for them to get money rested with community development financial institutions, they all capped at $100,000. And these were businesses that were almost near or over a million dollars. So no disrespect, but 100,000 was not going to get them to scale. And the third was most of them were not tech businesses. So they didn't qualify for this beautiful boom of venture capital. And so that one kind of geographically specific, I will say pilot has now launched 1863, where we realized based on a study by Endeavor, 88% of all organ entrepreneurial organizations in this country are focused on startups. And I'm like, well, what happens when you go beyond three years? Hence, no wonder 50% of businesses fail after five. So we became laser focused on those who wanted to scale and grow a business. And, and just a real quick data point. For example, we don't do pitching and fundraising, right? We take you from being a startup founder to a CEO. Do you actually know how to operate a business? Do you know how to hire people? Do you know how to manage your finances? Dare I say beyond QuickBooks, no disrespect, but, and we realized that that was a skill that wasn't taught unless you went to get your MBA. And with all due respect, 150 grand. And certainly there are, you know, most of our entrepreneurs, we say between 38 and 42, they're not interested in, in sitting in class. And so there was nothing for them. The other thing is that part of the research I did at Georgetown, I found that it cost a quarter of a million dollars more for a black business to start the same exact business as their white peer. And three quick data points. You could actually charge me more in debt. So we're paying anywhere between one and a half to two percent more. People say, well, no big deal. But, you know, after a while, that adds up. Um, and if you're on a million dollar loan, that's not chump change. The second thing is, is because we didn't get into these accelerator programs, we didn't have teams. When I started my first business, my roommate said, well, somebody better get a job just so we can pay the rent. We get locked out of free credits if we do want to do a tech company. We get locked out of free counseling, free lawyers, free accountants. And then the other thing is, dare I say, because there is a negative narrative around the trajectory and potential of black and brown businesses, we saw a 4X churn on consultants who oftentimes would give bad advice or not take us seriously. So I realized, wow, those are some significant costs. And then when you think about the missed opportunity of not investing in black entrepreneurs, that would be over a million businesses, 900,000 jobs and $300 billion in the economy if we invested in black business on par with white. And so I look at this as not just a moral imperative of like, let's talk about the new majority, but really an economic one, since black entrepreneurs and Latinx businesses are the fastest growing, it seems naive that as, as a country, we are underinvesting in some of the fastest growing businesses and those that are creating jobs. Ethan, I'm sure you have questions. I, I think they're certainly speaking your language. I'm gonna turn it over to you to help us uh, take apart some of what Melissa and Frederick are sharing with us. Yeah, so it's wonderful to hear, and you know, you're so close to the ground on all of these issues. Uh, as an academic, one of the way it's been a big topic of study recently is how do we address some of these gaps, right? It's her, all the evidence we have is that there is no difference in quality level between a female entrepreneur, male entrepreneur, black entrepreneur, white entrepreneur, and quality is evenly distributed, opportunity is not, right? And what's been depressing, though, is uh, from our research is to find how many places along the pipeline it leaks, right? So there's less interest in, you know, in starting businesses because of social reasons for women and entrepreneurs of color. Um, there is, there are fewer companies seeking funding. They seek funding in different areas. When they seek funding, we know, for example, women get asked different questions than men. Uh, when they're asked by entrepreneurs, they're asked about how to avoid losing, while men are asked how to win, which is associated with higher returns. Um, and then when they actually get funding, right, lower valuations, lower returns. 
Um, and you know, the, and as you said, the numbers are pretty shocking, right? Um, not only are black-owned businesses uh, hugely underrepresented, but women make up 38% of business owners in the U.S., and they receive somewhere around 3% of VC goes to all female-run companies. So, I mean, this is a, you know, I often show my class a picture of a, of a white male Stanford grad and say this is who gets most of the funding in the U.S. Um, and so I guess the question is, given all the leaks along the way, right, how do we, how do you guys think about addressing some of those concerns beyond just, you know, being the, the, the voice when you get there, right, from, from the beginning and sourcing all the way through to the end of the pipeline and, and getting that money and, and later, as Melissa was saying, getting that advice? Yeah, Ethan, it's it's a really good good set of questions. And I think, you know, it, it starts with like putting in the effort. You know what I mean? Like it, it is shocking how little awareness still exists about the fundamental problems. And 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 you know, the reality is we can source better. You know, the talents out there, the the founders in the community are there. And, and in many instances, they're reaching out. It's just the mechanisms that we built that are the norms that you know this ecosystem is built off of don't work for all for, for diverse individuals for any underrepresented group particularly well and so you know i think a big part of this is we've got to probably think about entrepreneurship more broadly uh and small business as not just having to be tech but like as units that generate wealth and community right and how do we enable and facilitate that and i think as melissa was saying you can't just think about it as the capital problem or one part of it you've got to think about it as the mentorship the education the success all the elements that need to go into that, because at every stage, even as you, you put out, put forward, you know, the underrepresented communities, particularly the black community is, you know, structurally kept out of access to that knowledge, whether that's having parents or friends of parents that ran businesses as they're growing up or, you know, access to, you know, friends and family money that can help them raise that 120,000 friends and family around to get off the ground. And unfortunately, you know, all the structural historical things that have, you know, made it that much more difficult for people of color in this country to navigate, you know, really just get personified in, in tech and venture in a way that, that that's pretty tough. Now, the good news here is I think there's a real willingness increasingly to try to solve these problems. Um, and there can be a solution set. I think we've got to create these pathways. We've got to acknowledge and empower community members. Um, that are diverse themselves who have access to these founders to, to help, uh, help, help those individuals, you know, be the, 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 the torchbearers to help these founders navigate their own paths and be successful. Um, and we've got to do that at a level that we do for everybody else. We can't expect people to get to the same end spot with, you know, a third of the capital, which is the reality today. At almost every stage, black founders raise a third less than their white counterparts. And that's fundamentally a problem. It, it means by its very nature, they're just not going to be competitive at different stages. And so, you know, we've got to be realistic about that. And this is the job of venture right now. As we evolve from a cottage industry to, you know, an asset class that's going to continue to be sustained on people's uh, long-term strategies, you know, for LPs and, and limited partnerships, we got to start to do better. We've got to emerge and no longer use our cottage industry as an excuse to not do the work to, to build diversity and inclusion you know, in every part of this ecosystem. Yeah, I would double up on all that. I mean, I think, um, you know, what we're doing at HC3, I will share, but ideally we could get out of this business um, because I think we started over five years ago and, and realized that there was not the robust conversation that fortunately or unfortunately uh, we're having post-George Floyd. And so we realized that to Frederick's point, there were, and to yours, there's various leakage points. And so we set out to really create this glide path so that we would stop the leaks. Um, so we have a pretty traditional accelerator program that is sector agnostic that really focuses on 
running a business, which I think is a skill set not a lot of people have. And I think too often it is glazed over that I can go on a television show, make a pitch, somebody write me a check for a million dollars and voila, I'm in business. And we all know that's why some businesses fail. So we spend a lot of time de-risking the entrepreneur. Um, we also help expand their social capital, right? Black and brown entrepreneurs have social capital, but it's very different. I did not meet my first black CEO till I sold my first company. And then I said, where have you been all of my life? Um, so we try to expand uh, the social capital of entrepreneurs through one-on-one -on -one coaching and mentoring programs as they go through the program when they graduate. And then the final thing, which has been since we started, is having these outcome-based relationships, because what we know is that entrepreneurs just need a chance. And if we get enough that I can change the perception that that woman had of me at the SBA, that she had no proxy or precedent, if I can create some success stories, then hopefully they will become the norm. And so we've been very fortunate with organizations like Target, where a lot of our companies are CBG companies. 40% of our companies are automatically pipelined. So they get on the shelves or they get on the website. So we have de-risked them. We have found them some ongoing support beyond graduation. And now we've gotten them in stores or on the shelves. Of course, then we realize there's no money. And so now we've created this precursor vehicle, 1863 Venture Fund, where we provide 40%. We call it Catalyst. So it's the equity convertible where we can unlock other dollars. And we found with all these new funds focused on black and brown entrepreneurs, we've made some very small investments in mostly tech or platform companies that have actually unlocked five to seven to 10 times more from some of these other VCs because they feel comfortable that they're investing with a fellow black LP. And then the other 60% is relegated to revenue-based financing. And I would say that while I think, you know, Fred, I think would agree with me, venture capital is not for everybody. And the reality is we've kind of put it together as it's either online predatory lending, CDFIs, which capital amount yep. or VP. And there's a whole valley of death right there. And so we have had more than sufficient response from our alumni uh, for revenue-based financing because it's non-predatory. It's non-extractive, as Keisha Cash would say. Uh, it actually fits the business model. And we have modeled it that within five years, we should get full repayment on a loan between $250 to $1 million because our companies are making money in part because we've created those connections, but also in part because now they've expanded upon those connections. So my hope is that we're creating a playbook that ultimately in 10 years, we can go away. Our vision is to create $100 billion of new wealth by and for new majority entrepreneurs by 2030. If we can do it before then, awesome. But the biggest thing is we've said, look, here's a playbook. You don't have to own end to end, but you've got to make sure that there's components of that for capital. And there's more people like Frederick for training. There's more people who focus on how to build a business owner and not just a quick pitch person. If we can do all of that, then I think we'll be in much better shape. One of the things that I really liked about what both of you said was the idea of kind of building a sustaining community, right? So if we look at other minority groups that have done very well, so, uh, you know, uh, descendants of East Asian immigrants and South Asian immigrants actually have higher rates of VC reception, right? And self-sustaining communities, there's papers showing that there's, you know, basically once you know the network, right, sourcing becomes much easier, the money stays in the community and recycles. So what I what it was really interesting about what both of you were saying was the ways of building this in a sustainable way. So do you see those communities starting to grow where where black uh, founders who cash out are putting money back in uh, because they know the black community better, so they're able to better serve that community and better find opportunities? Are we starting to see the beginning of those virtuous cycles? I'll say slowly but surely. I think for me, our entrepreneurs were not quite there yet. Uh, they've got a few more years b before an exit happens. But I would say is where they're giving back to, to Stephanie's earlier point around jobs is they're creating jobs. Um, you know, despite COVID, we just finished the first part of our impact report. And over 50 57% of our companies have created new jobs 
in spite of COVID. Over 59% have actually generated more revenue than what they had the prior year. So I think it just speaks to the resilience of, of black, black and brown entrepreneurs. So I think when they get exits, there is, I assume, this ongoing uh, give back, but most of them, at least we know of right now, are like, how can I best give back to my community? It's through job creation. Now, I will say before I pass it to Frederick, when I had an exit, the first thing I did was become an angel. I was like, this is absolutely ridiculous. I have to make sure this never happens again. But I do want to say that I think one of the challenges, and I am a sandwich kid where I'm taking care of my 92-year-old mother and I have six kids, we do have something called the black tax that we cannot just throw out the window, which says, although we may have an exit, let's be clear, our family and other commitments have probably already spoken for 60 to 70 percent of that. And so I do think by the nature of how I personally define community, which I think many of my peers do, we automatically give back. But quantitatively, it just may look a little different. Yeah, I, I co-sign everything Melissa just sort of walked through. You know, I, I think, you know, on the founder piece, we're still watching it. Um, but I would say, you know, within the broader tech ecosystem, right? So these would be people who are operators, people who have the knowledge and, you know, maybe even have the W2 where they can be angel investing. You're seeing an uptick in the desire to find ways to invest in the community, right? Um, and I'm seeing that across, you know, the black community, particularly here in tech. Um, and part of that also is, you know, we're, we're building programs like the Black Venture Institute, which Melissa is a partner on, um, to try to actively say, hey, look, for those very folks who are, in in the tech ecosystem that that want to understand this whole uh value creation economy that is venture that's sort of you know top of the news how do we get that knowledge how do i get the knowledge or the access to become an lp in a fund or even understand what that means and how do i then evaluate a good fund from an okay fund and and, and how do i then think about angel investing as well if that's of interest to me and do that in the context of like-minded peers and backed up by a community of professionals that do this as their job to create a level of safety in the ecosystem. And so, you know, we're, we're seeing that. But I think the key is it's it's really people looking to to invest uh, in the community to see an outcome because they believe in the long term ability of the black community to be successful and begin to see, you know, the as they, as the community starts to get access to begin to see part of that wealth begin to, to grow. Because, you know, ultimately, that's what this is all about. I mean, this is the, the big challenge this is why I often talk about what we see happening in, in corporate America right now in the post, you know, George Floyd era right now is a conversation around, hey, civil rights did a lot in terms of legal freedoms uh, for the black community. But when it comes to wealth and the transfer of that wealth, we've got a lot to have, you know, real conversations about and whether that wealth, you know, is, is moving the way we want it to move uh, in, in the United States at a macro level. Um, but more importantly, do we, uh, are we enabling everybody to have equal access to be able to generate net new wealth? And that's really what we're looking at and trying to talk about. Let's create opportunities for, you know, business minded individuals to generate businesses, hire folks within the community and, and thrive together. Absolutely. So this has been fascinating. I've, I've been taking notes quite extensively because I think it's sort of, I have a couple of questions, one for Ethan and then the follow up on this discussion, um, for Melissa and Frederick, but, I've been thinking a couple of things here. One is I'm trying to think about to what extent is is what we're hearing around some of, some of the opportunities and challenges for for black founders and entrepreneurs. To what extent do those appear similarly when we think about women as a whole? 
So I know Ethan has some research where he's looked at gender. And so I'm interested and I'm sure people who are listening are interested in the parallels or lack thereof between these two groups that are marginalized. And a lot of times when we're when we're talking about in class, I'll just say women and racial minorities, because there's sometimes where the problem is the same. And then there's sometimes where the problem's different or the opportunity is different. So I want to like parse out a little bit more, Ethan, if you can help us with that. And then I'm going to move into a conversation that's, again, trying to as we think about mapping um, to some extent, as I listen to you all talk, it sounds like the barriers and challenges that any black person or woman or anybody in the minority is going to face in the world of work. And so also trying to understand how much of this is just about workplace issues and how much of this is about entrepreneurship as the added layer. So I'm going to start with Ethan, the conversation about gender, and then I'll turn it over to Melissa and Frederick, the entrepreneurship versus work question. Ethan. Yeah. So one of the things, as I told you, there's lots of issues that have been discovered and, you know, not discovered, but have been described in the literature in the last five years. Right. And we, a lot of your, your Stephanie, you're my colleagues both work on some of these exact issues. Right. And so there's a lot of scholars on this. Um, one of the things that I think is interesting and relevant to this is a paper that I worked on. So women are underrepresented and tend to do worse in raising funding across the board, even in bank loans for a variety of reasons, even when it's supposed to be blinded except in crowdfunding. So in crowdfunding, a woman launching the same project as a man is 13% more likely to succeed. And I have a paper with uh, Jason Greenberg, who's also at Wharton uh, with me right now and at NYU. And we found that the reason for this was actually women were outperforming men in areas where women were least represented. So in technology and video game projects on Kickstarter, women were blowing it out of the water. And we thought it would be because women were more represented as investors in areas like fashion. Wasn't the case. It was where they were least represented, they were doing well. And we found what happened was about a third of women, when you surveyed them, were there to help other women out. So when they saw a disadvantage, they stepped in. Now, the other, most of the other women didn't care. So those, the other women who weren't in the third who were activists didn't care and actually funded more male projects than female projects. But it was a small group of activists that were sustaining women's success and helping create this self-reinforcing cycle. And what I, you know, what I like about this is there's a solution. What I don't like about it is it puts the, you know, the group at the disadvantaged at the heart of the solution, right? So it says, okay, women have, if we, the only way for, men seem to show no bias either way, it seemed to be women helping each other out that was causing the success. So that's sort of where I am hearing about this is both of you are doing the work in terms of lifting up, you know, the community and another, and a group that's underrepresented that you're part of. But it's tough. And, you know, I think a question to come back to later is what should everybody else be doing to kind of assist? Because so far, it doesn't seem to be working. Women are actually getting uh, the stories for uh, for black funding seems to be getting better. But for female funding, it's dropping. It's worse in, in 2021 than it was in, 19, in 2017. And, you know, we talked about about um, Black Lives Matter, but like. Me Too happened before that, and the world's gotten worse since Me Too. And venture capital had a very aborted Me Too, Me Too movement where three or four people were publicly kicked out, and then it just sort of closed ranks the way it has in other fields. So I think where I am is thinking about these models, but also what can we learn about the fact that it isn't taking off yet? Um, and, you know, and what models can we follow from there? So I think thinking about how the majority, how the average um, you know, male funder should act differently uh, becomes a really important question. And I think part of that is what you guys were saying, which is that um, some of this appears to be good natured people who don't know about their own blindness or don't know about or, or don't know the mostly male funders and mostly male friends. They don't meet women. And that when they're asked to find a female entrepreneur, they're like, I don't know any female entrepreneurs. 
And that is only issued, you know, multiplied for black founders where, you know, you say like, I'd love to invest it in more and more black founders. I just, there aren't any out there. That's just because their personal networks don't include anybody who's different than them. So trying to figure out how we break that down and give people a glide path, I think is going to be important there uh, as well. So Melissa said the words black tax earlier. And as Ethan was talking about, you know, women having to help women and Melissa, you were talking, yeah, to me, that's sort of like one variation on the theme of black tax, which means you have to not only be the person who is trudging uphill, you know, swimming, but you also have to be the person who's helping everybody else who's struggling um, move along as well. So, yeah. So anybody who didn't know, that's that's the embodiment of it, I think, as it exists in the e-ship space. But let me sort of work versus e-ship, like how much of this is just about being black and a woman and a minority and things that we're just going to have to deal with no matter where we are, either whether entrepreneurs are working at a big financial services firm and how much of this is like unique to this space. I would say uh, I'm, I'm not sure they're mutually exclusive, right? I mean, I think systemic racism causes people to make choices that they want to make or not make. <clears throat> I would say a lot of our entrepreneurs, we ask them, what was the, what is their origin story? And a lot of it was, I was sick and tired of corporate America and I needed to leave because I figure I could, at least if I could pay myself what they were paying me, I'd be okay. <clears throat> or I realize I'm underpaid or I need to make up the wage gap because I am a woman in corporate America and I'm not making enough money. And so let me try this entrepreneurship thing. And then it actually takes off. Uh, And there are some, in all fairness, that say, I just want to be an entrepreneur because I want to give back to the community. But I think, you know, what you've teed up earlier is that I don't know, as somebody who's had jobs in the public sector and the private sector and who's been a venture-backed entrepreneur and, and, and now an investor as well, I don't know that there's a distinction. Uh, I think that there is just general systemic bias by individuals and racism by institutions. Sometimes they crisscross that has not done two things. It has not created a positive story about the wealth, literal, literal and figurative, that we bring to society. I think there are those that because we started as property and assets, we continue to be property and assets and people have not been able to make that shift. And I think it's important. I would also say that, you know, financial service is a regulated industry, but it doesn't regulate based on race. It regulates ideally based on fairness, but that fairness has not taken into account the systemic racism. So when it's actually okay, right, to give somebody a different credit score because they actually have plenty of money, but they're taking care of all of their siblings during COVID, there's got to be a way. And so I've become a huge proponent of alternative credit scores or any of those kinds of things. But I think those are the two balancing issues, right? The stereotypes persist and we've got to break through those. I think Fred and Black BC are doing some amazing things, both on the investor and the entrepreneur side. But we also have to look at where's the role of policy to kind of mitigate some of this and, and not necessarily to be a, a punch or a knock upside the head. But how do we just create some guardrails so that people don't go so far off the rails with their assumptions that it paints a negative picture and doesn't make us credit where they have the ability to access? Yeah, I, I think, you know, the, the the policy part is a big part of this, uh, as Melissa sort of putting out here. You know, one of the things a lot of people don't realize, the big part of the money that VCs invest come from public pension funds. So the very retirement pools of, you know, generally fairly diverse populations. I mean, government employees are are, are quite diverse. And yet, you know, the, those retirement funds then get allocated and given to non-diverse fund managers who then invest in the communities and networks that they have, which tend to not be diverse as well. And so, you know, you have this this fundamental system and structure that, you know, in fact, takes a dollar that's been earned from the community and then leverages it to help drive economic empowerment to other communities and built in systems that then aren't attempting to ensure equity. 
right? That maybe those very pensioners might want that dollar to invest in their own communities in some meaningful way. And this has a huge impact when you do this decade after decade and that lack of capital being reinvested in the communities. And so, you know, I think about this a lot around how does the dollar, how long does it take for the dollar to leave a community? Um, and, and that's one of the fundamental, I think, big policy things we're going to have to discuss, you know, at some point here. Um, when you have a, you know, an industry and a subsector that, you know, is still dependent on these public pension funds. Um, and I don't think we've talked about that a lot yet on the venture side. I mean, it's a topic that gets talked sometimes in closed doors and rooms. Um, but it's like this hidden secret that, you know, is just waiting to, to, to kind of explode on the scene. Um, and it's something I think we need to think more about, you know, Professor Malik, you know, one of the things you mentioned, you know, earlier, it, I think is, is really important for us to, to come back to is, is the fact that, you know, these women, you know, have, have seen a decline, uh, in, in their access and ability to get funding. And, and when we start to look and layer identity on top of that, right. And think of, you know, black women, you know, or Latinx women, we see these narratives play out where, you know, they're being, you know, structurally hit harder and harder as you think about the nuance of identity and how these overlapping pieces come together. And so, you know, it's, it, I am, I am worried about, you know, if we aren't talking about these issues, if we aren't proactive and focused on them, whether they actually get fixed and changed because the challenge is we're lo- looking at single digit percentages still, right? And these ecosystems and communities, whether that's on the venture investing side of the world or the founders receiving the money. Um, and, and we need to be doing a better job. Now, I do have a little more hope that from a gender lens that over time we're solving that a little bit as you know we've started to shift and change how wealth is moving more equitably between men and women particularly when people you know receive inheritances and things like that but that wealth we still don't even have that initial outlay of wealth in the black community and a lot of communities of color and that when that wealth is key to being able to get a good credit rating or be able to leverage that house that you inherited from your parents to get a loan to start your first business um, these things, you know, they're, they're very tricky and they're, you know, they, they really have to look at a lot of different areas in society to try to build structural systems that can, you know, help to change and drive more access for, for a broader set of Americans. So I want to, um, just center for a little bit while longer, the entrepreneur, but I, this time I want to center them as the person who's running a company and even if it's two people, there are people who work there, right? Yeah. And so I'm having flashbacks around the time where Uber got into trouble and so many um, startups in um, Silicon Valley got into trouble because they had no, they did not have any HR policies, let alone diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy. Um, and I think that's an important part of this conversation as well, because I think it's very easy for all the reasons you've mentioned to get fixated, rightfully so, on, on raising capital, that you forget that you're building a business and there are people who work there who want opportunity and safety and, and want a voice. So as you're thinking about the people running these companies, and, and Melissa, you were talking about skills building, right, in these incubators, and, and Frederick, you've done some of this work as well. What are you advising, or if at all, how are you advising entrepreneurs to actually integrate principles of diversity, equity, inclusion into their actual companies from the start. Students are always saying to me, oh, but we're trying so hard to meet whatever deadline or somebody's demand. We don't have time to be thinking about a HR strategy. And that's very different from the mature companies I'm used to talking about is they have other excuses for why they don't talk about DEI, but it's not this, the pressure seems a little bit differently. So, so my question is, is 
what does a DEI strategy look like for a startup? Um, how do you sort of help uh, founders to think about these things? Uh, Frederick, let's start with you. Yeah, look, I mean, for me, it starts with good governance. I mean, this is the whole point of like an institutional investor coming in and, and investing. We got to make sure there's good governance and that we're asking the right questions, that they're putting in place the right policies uh, from day one. And don't wait until you hit EEOC metrics and you're at 100 people and now you're reporting against it because at that yeah. point, it's too late. Um, and so, you know, we think about it as like, how do we put in process that we're going to use as a company to hire? What are the very fundamentals that, you know, that this company is built on and how are we going to do that in every area of the business, whether that's the customers that we're developing relationships with and making sure that our employees can engage with diverse buyers. Because at the end of the day, diversity isn't just something, you know, that exists within our own little company. We got to think about it more broadly. Um, and then it also means making and being proactive around diversifying, you know, like the boardroom and different spaces and the executive team. Because one of the issues we see that happen a lot is people might do an okay job with entry-level employees, but then as you start to look at the executive team mature out, can we forget? Or we only focus on the DEI-related stuff on entry-level and don't focus on making sure people are getting promoted up and moved through the organization. And that's, again, where I think a board and a management team can really work closely together to, to make sure that stuff is happening. Um, but, I mean, it really does just start with having the conversation and making sure people are aware that this is, matters and it's something we're going to continue to reflect and then you're putting in measurable elements to that as well, right? So, you know, if you see that there is no diversity, let's put in metrics to say, okay, by this date, we want to have X and back out. What are the things we need to do to achieve that? And where are we going to find that talent? If we, if our existing process isn't working, well, maybe we need to go get help. And maybe we need to think about other, you know, ecosystems that may not have existed in our, you know, knowledge of the world, but I can guarantee you they're there. They're trying to build these pipelines and pathways. Melissa, any thoughts? No, I, I would say mostly with black and brown entrepreneurs, we have the re we have a reverse issue, I guess. I mean, most of them go after their friends and family first, uh, in part because they don't have a lot of capital. And so we find, ironically, the early stages of black and brown businesses, the the workforce or their employees tend to look just like them um, because there's an element of, of trust. It is where their social capital comes from. In many cases, the businesses that we work with are very much focused on selling a product or service, but usually they're selling that product or service to our communities. And so that first marketing position is someone from that community so they actually understand. Uh, we tend to have to hire, unfortunately, outside for tech talent, uh, and that's where it comes challenging, and not so much because of, of racial diversity, it's lack of access to capital. We oftentimes are cobbled cobbling together piecemeal contracts and, and, and dollars coming in because we oftentimes don't have the opportunity to hire, I would say, diverse talent, particularly to Frederick's point, as you move up the scale because we can't afford it. Uh, you know, we're cash trapped from the beginning. And so you continue through that cycle, which I think is horrible across the board, right? One, we, we are limited to a pool of friends and family that we can say, hey, do me a favor, do me a solid, take a little pay cut. I promise I'll get back to you, do some bonuses, which is not sustainable. Um, but it doesn't allow us to diversify and probably get maybe the best in class of talent because we don't have the capital to acquire them. Ethan, let me let you jump in here, see what you're thinking um, with respect to what you're hearing and um, what's on your mind. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, we've talked about the burden on black founders and women founders. So that's because minority groups, right? So what can the majority do? What can non-minority founders, right, male or or, or non-black founders, non-brown founders do to, uh, or, or venture capitalists or loan officers or program managers or whatever it is, do to help? Assuming there's goodwill out there and desire. And, of course, the most frustrating thing here is, 
we don't have evidence. We don't have studies yet on black founders, but we do know for fee, if you if venture capitalists backed more female founders, they'd make more money, right? So it's not that there isn't an incentive. Your ROI would be better, right? So let's assume that people know this and they understand that they should that they want to either you know a mix of of altruism and greed, which you know in the in the best possible sense they want to help this community, they want to invest more. What should they be doing? What what can the majority be doing to help out more? I would say first and foremost, be an advocate, right? That signal effect is no small thing. So get out of the comfort zone, go talk to entrepreneurs, be articulate and well-informed on the successful trajectory of many black and brown founders so that we stop the onesies and twosies and we actually make it a real market opportunity that clearly I believe and Fred believes and many others believe. I think the second thing is, Use your privilege to help shift and move and honestly make people feel uncomfortable. Um, you know, I think I don't know that it's always black and white. Right. I think it's perception and, and attitude and values. And so one of the things we, we did a, um, a town hall for investors who were interested in investing in black founders. And I said, sure, it'd be great if, to Fred's point, you had a diverse investment committee, you had a diverse LPAC. Uh, that'd be wonderful. We recognize it's hard to find, but at least find other folks who may be in the space who've already acknowledged and understand the value of diversity and the value in black and brown entrepreneurs. And, and for a lot of angel groups, we get lots of calls. Do you have any entrepreneurs to come talk to it? Come talk to our membership. I think it's just really learning, right? You've got to be willing to be uncomfortable and you've got to be willing to learn. It, it is a long tail. I would also say, in light of George Floyd, there was a race to all these commitments and we'll see if they actually manifest. But we're not going to eradicate in six months or 12 months what took 400 plus years to get to. So I would say there also has to be an element of patience, but also persistence. This can't be just a policy you throw up on a wall or you put in your personnel menu. You've got to walk the talk from now until, and I will say that's just one fear that I have, that when black and brown folks are no longer popular and we moved on to something else, like you said, the Me Too, and then we moved on to something else, what's going to be next? I have no idea. I'm almost afraid. But we've got to be willing to have the sustainable focus on what is right for pure market economics as opposed to this is a passing fad and once it's no longer popular news and there's no more podcasts about it, then I can just keep on going because that must mean the problem was solved. And we all know that's not the case. Yeah, one of the things I, I always think about it, you know, is I think allies or, or sponsors, they need to be willing to be uncomfortable. And, and there has to be that that desire that being uncomfortable and having hard conversations, um, that it's going to be okay. Uh, and and But if you're not uncomfortable as you're not trying to navigate some of these topics, that means you're probably not going as far as you need to be going because it's going to feel a little not normal. It's going to feel out of the natural pattern because that's what it is. You are breaking the pattern, creating a new normal. Um, and if you're not feeling that way, the organization has more to do that. Uh, you have more to do. And I think that's the expectation. And look, the reality is all those diverse individuals that you are it's, you know, wanting to build networks with and, and invest behind, guess what? They're constantly feeling awkward. They're constantly navigating and being uncomfortable in the space that they're operating in because that's the reality of their lived experiences. They have to do that to be able to build these businesses. Um, and so I think the least we can do is be willing to do that. Um, I think a big part of it is, is also being willing to acknowledge the privilege that you have and then think about how can I use that privilege to help someone else? And consistently asking and going through that sort of set of questions. Um, and, and look, that, that is not just for allies. I mean, I, I tell that to the black community all the time too, because we as investors or even as venture backed founders have privilege, have, you know, have something that we should be utilizing to share and tell stories and, and make it that much easier for the person behind us coming up, you know, coming up. It's our job to do that as well. 
Um, but I think a big part of it is, like I said, just being willing to be uncomfortable and leaning in because we've got to build the networks. You've got to build the relationships and, and there's just no like better way to do it. You've got to go out and, and meet these people and have these conversations. And that will build the empathy, the knowledge and, and should drive the change that I think we're all pushing and hoping for. And in a day and age when information and building connections digitally has never been easier, we have no reason not to be doing this work. I love the range of solutions you all are starting to share from things that are structural um, to things that are sort of interpersonal, right? Um, as an organizational behavior OB scholar, you know, for me, it's so important to acknowledge both, right? Is that there are both structural changes that are important and there are also people changes that are important. And, and so Frederick, you're, you're speaking my language as you're talking about people and allies, common mentors and networks and all this social capital stuff. I spend so much time thinking about, I actually spend a lot of time thinking about your direct manager <laughs> and, and how much they have to do with your success when you're in an organization, right? So, um, you know, we can call it allyship, we call it mentorship, but let's just talk about these developmental associates, if you will, this developmental network, if you will, of, of resources that one needs in any job in order to be successful. And I think what's certainly coming clear here today is that those same resources, that same type of social capital is, is especially vital to being um, successful in the uh, entrepreneurship space. And so um, Melissa and Frederick, you both emphasize mentorship as a core tenet of Eureka and Black VC, your, your respective organizations. Um, can you speak more about this um, in your ventures and in developing a more diverse and inclusive work environment? So how, how do you think about mentor? Like, I'm sure it's at all stages, but how do you think about where they're most important um, in terms of perhaps the gaps that exist? Because I think sometimes in examining the gaps, it helps us understand where we don't have strong relationships. But um, Melissa, what do you think? How does how does mentorship fit into your model? Yeah, so I think both at MHC3 and Eureka mentors are very important, both in terms of providing valuable advice and feedback and putting up a mirror and saying, you sure that's really what you want to do? Um, and just creating this kind of reflective space and safe space, most importantly, for entrepreneurs to kind of work through because they get intimidated. You know, they can't talk to an investor about this, although I really need to understand the perspective because they might hold it against me. Uh, and I think there's just a fear of finding the right person. So I think that's been critical. I think specifically at Eureka, we figured out how to engage our coaches and mentors in the learning journey. And so we have an entire 12 step process in terms of how we kind of reduce the friction that entrepreneurs face. And we have both of the coach and the entrepreneur go through the training program so they can actually have an honest, reflective conversation every single week to talk about what's happening. So I think overall, coaches, mentors, whatever you want to call them, I think third-party individuals who are deeply invested in the success of the entrepreneur, irrespective of gender and race, and who bring a level of cultural competency, which we train them on, and some business acumen can be great. You know, I think sometimes people say too many voices causes schizophrenia. Well, but more than one voice actually helps lead to a sound decision. And so I do think it's important. And obviously, again, for us, it helps to kind of amplify and increase the social capital, which down the road they're going to need, right? The beauty is I don't care what kind of program you're running for entrepreneurs, at some point in time, they're going to graduate. And so part of it, the last part is also creating a discipline for the entrepreneur to have a safe and trusted space to literally say, I'm losing my mind, or everything seems to be going wrong, or am I doing this right? And to be able to ask for help, because I do think we've created this vision of an entrepreneur who has all the right answers, and who can turn a dollar into a million dollars overnight. And that's not the normal trajectory for any business, despite the outliers that we put in case studies and talk about in the media. It's certainly not the pathway uh, for entrepreneurs of color who are going to face lots of roadblocks and, and you know, U-turns and, and all kinds of things. And so you're going to need a cadre of folks. We've got your kitchen cabinet who can actually begin to help you. 
absolutely. Frederick, what do you think? Yeah, I think Melissa named, uh, nailed it when it comes to sort of the, the needs on the founder side, right? It's, it's the structured sort of systems and communities. And, and mentorship isn't a point in time, right? It's like, you know, can continue to exist moving forward. Um, but one of the most important things I think she mentioned, which I just want to make sure we, we underline is that mentors often have to be trained. Um, you know, there has to be an understanding of the fundamental problems and how to have a shared language to approach that mentorship. And too often we forget that part, um, especially, you know, we saw, you know, after the tragic, you know, death of George Floyd, a, a huge outcry in the venture community of folks wanting to be mentors to, to black founders. Um, and that's great, but not all of those individuals should be mentors. And it's on the work and of many organizations to make sure that they have the skills and the tools to be able to do that well. You know, look, on the venture side, you know, it, it is interesting. It's, a, it's sort of a different challenge set. So so first of all, you know, the average venture fund is, is very small, right? I mean, you're talking about probably less than 10 people that are employed. It's truly a cottage industry. And, and generally speaking, VCs are horrible people managers. They're not great at it because the job itself does not really build to, to, to enable a good, to, you know, mentorship and tutoring and help. It's really often sort of a on your own, go hunt, go find deals and sort of a lone gun swinger kind of role and ecosystem. Now, I got lucky at my firm where I, you know, joining Storm as an analyst, moving all the way up. I had a, a community of mentors that, that were really trying to build a great investment firm versus just developing great investors. Um, but that is not the mentality generally out there. And, and that's part of the reason we had to build something like Black VC originally was, was saying, hey, look, these firms aren't going to do it. They don't have the incentive. They don't have the tools to do it well. We as a community better find a way to do it. And this industry is so impactful uh, and has so much leverage in terms of its ability to impact the lived journeys of a lot of different folks out there. We better do that and think about this differently. And so what's worked in corporate America where you might be able to build something in one firm because that company is big enough. We have to do that as an industry lens and as an entire ecosystem, and it's different, but it means that mentorship is that much more important, and the mentors have to come from other firms, Re, you know, individuals saying, hey, look, I'm going to reach out and spend my time to help you, you know, associate at, you know, competitor, competitive fund, because I want you to be successful in this industry, and it's the only way we're going to make meaningful changes if I invest my time and energy in you. And we got to do more of that. And the good news is we're seeing that begin to happen, but it's got to, it's got to build and grow. Um, I think another big part of mentorship is, is what we also got to make sure we're mentoring each other within the community. It can't just be the external community coming in to try to support and, and tell us the way it, it's going to be. Cause the reality is what worked for that individual and that community, phenomenal. But the reality is different communities have different challenges and pain points and no one community is a monolith. We know that. And so that means it's that much more important that we also equip our young people with mentors from within the community to help them understand, you know, the, the nuance and the politics of sort of, you know, developing your career. Um, and I'm sure, you know, Melissa can, can attest to this. I mean, it's so important. Venture, it's not, you know, it's not A plus B equals C, you know, uh, necessarily. There's a lot of other things that go into this ecosystem. So I'm going to turn it over to Ethan to provide, you know, any additional perspective that you've had as you've listened to uh, Melissa and Frederick, but also as you've been reflecting on our conversation today and, and any questions that you might have that are still remaining before we open it up to some of our audience questions. Ethan? Sure. And I, I mean, it's been really just great. I mean, I have a lot of things I'm thinking about as a result of what you guys were saying here today uh, that I think would be really interesting to follow up with both kind of research and sort of the the conversations we have in classrooms about uh, about this. The other thing that you know uh, that that 
I think is important is we've kind of talked very abstractly, but in terms of advice to minority or, you know, or, or female founders, what is the piece of advice you'd give them, you know, irrespective of sort of system, given the system we have right now to maximize their chance of success? What, what's the sort of piece of advice that you would leave them with? Or and I, I feel like people might feel very negative after hearing all discussion of barriers this whole time. Um, so what's maybe, you know, forward leaning positive advice to the extent that it's possible being aware that all of these barriers are in place and being aware that, you know, that, that non-minority members have to think about how they're contributing to change and all the other stuff we've discussed. Where, where, where would you say, what advice would you give uh, before we sort of turn it over to questions? Yeah. I mean, for me, look, yes, we're talking a lot, a lot of the challenges, but you know, the big part here and, and a key takeaway is that there's a greater understanding of these problems and challenges across the industry than there's ever been. And so what that means is if you're, you know, a, an entrepreneur, a, a female founder, a black founder, a Latinx founder, it doesn't matter. You have more funds who are tuned into these challenges and more willing to lean in, take the time and meet. And so you should do that. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't have to have, you know, your, your eyes dotted, your, you know, and your T's crossed. You better be tight and you better know what you're doing and, and do your homework coming in and, and be very ready to blow people away because people are willing and waiting to be blown away. And it's our job just to do it. And that just means practice. It means talking to mentors and it means not being afraid to ask what you might perceive as dumb questions because there are no dumb questions when you're, you're in the early days. And I'd rather you ask me the question, then, you know, not ask the question and that that lack of context or, you know, knowledge be the difference between you being able to be successful or not. So I want to take, okay. No, I was going to say what better went first because I was struggling uh, even to find some positive things Um, because I only, only because, only because I think all the things that I was raised with, know you got to be a hundred percent better, find a community where you feel safe, Uh, you know, take time to reflect, don't let somebody else define your attitude and your worthiness. I mean, I hate to say it, but like those things are still required uh, because otherwise we find that, and hopefully Frederick can attest this, otherwise what I'm seeing is an overwhelming presence of imposter syndrome that is totally ill-founded. And so, you know, you've got, I mean, the biggest thing is find a peer group so that you are not comparing yourself with everything that's out there. And dare I say, lots of the case studies that we give to our students, but you find a peer group so you can actually see what amazing work you're doing, but also have a safe way to say, like, I totally screwed up. Can somebody help me? And I think that's the huge part. Um, you know, it's one of the big drivers of Eureka is that there's a safe space. You can create your own communities. You can join a community. And we say that you cannot let the external standards define what your greatness is. And you have to then find others to help reinforce this, because let's be clear, entrepreneurship is a sport. And one would argue it's probably one of the hardest sports out there. Uh, and, and you know, I play golf and that's, I'm not good at it, but that's pretty doggone hard. But you have to really figure out it's also a team sport and you need those folks around you. I wish I had something better. I, I know you put your hands in your head because it's the same old adage, but you know, I think we've, what I say, we've come a long way, baby, but we've still got a long way to go I, for sure. And I, I didn't put my head in, I was just, when you said there's no good news, I'm like, oh no, I wanted to end with good news. That's all. It's not the same old. It was only that I was hoping. And I will say the one thing that does strike me is entrepreneurship is hard in the best of times, right? Even without right. dealing with bias and other stuff and imposter syndrome is real. And I want, I want, the other thing I want to just say is like, it's not like there's a magic key where like some, like I, I tell my students, there's no angel of entrepreneurship that's going to come down and touch you on the shoulder and say, it's time, my child, you're ready. There is a plunge for anybody. And even though there's all these biases and difficulty against you, I, I don't think you should feel that just that everyone else knows what they're doing. 
everyone is faking it. Imposter syndrome is so deep in entrepreneurship that, you know, getting past that is an issue for anyone. And I just want to make sure, you know, that that's something that everyone realizes there's not anyone who's feeling like this is the time, you know, it definitely, I'm, I'm the one to make this happen. And being able to admit mistakes and admit issues, finding community you feel comfortable doing that makes all the difference in the world. So I don't want you to think it was like, oh no, the same old thing. It was more like, I just want people, this is gonna be hard for everybody. And I want you to know there's no magic path, uh, you know, for the people watching here as well. All right, so let's take some of these audience questions. There are a couple that are about gender. So I'm going to um, provide a little bit of perspective and then I'm gonna pull them together. And so as I think about the pandemic, as many of us are right now, as we're, you know, live from our homes or our offices. Um, you know, certainly this really depressing news has come out in the last couple of weeks that women in the U.S. are, are the hardest hit by the pandemic and all of it is the nature of the jobs that women have in service and retail and that women of color and black women in, in particular are really the hardest hit economically by the pandemic. And so, what the first question is, the first part of the question is, is as you're thinking about the gender gap in funding and, you know, Ethan talked about the the depressing statistic around things are not necessarily improving. They're sort of on the, on the downhill swing. How do we relate or how can we relate the pandemic this last year? I can't believe it's been that long, um, but this last year to that, um, you know, people are wondering Certainly, the pandemic has had a greater effect on women who are more likely to quit their professional pursuits to take care of duties at home. So some, please get, provide us a little bit more perspective on this topic as it relates to the pandemic. And then this is interesting because this actually reminds me of the research on negotiation, which says that uh, women don't have high salaries because they don't ask, they don't negotiate. And, and that's controversial because there's other research that says even if they ask, they're not given the same, you know, as you all mentioned credit scores, right? We, we know there's the other side of the thing is you might ask and somebody might tell you no, but this person, uh, so the person said, it stated that women don't get funded because there aren't that many women even applying for funding. This brings up a question around pushing business or STEM fields for underrepresented groups. Is there any role that VC funding can play to up, up these careers? So pandemic, but also what's this conversation around women applying or not and, and how might that help us understand uplifting women and things like STEM. So I'm gonna open up to the three of you because I do believe that each of you can, can say something on one of these topics. So I'm gonna let you all figure out who's gonna go first here. <laughs> all right, Ethan, go okay. for it. I guess that's me. Whenever it points to the screen, I'm not sure. <laughs> Is that me? Um, it's so, everybody. Um, everybody so passed. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, okay. So first of all, there is the weird good news about the pandemic, right? And, and entrepreneurship. I mean, there's not a lot of good news, but if you, uh, when we looked at the stats in March and April, it looked like entrepreneurship was going nowhere, like it was a disaster, right? Um, and the new stats have actually been incredibly positive. So both venture-backed funding is way up from where we thought it would be. There is more diverse, like, so we haven't even talked about geographic diversity, but 40% of VC funding is within three or four miles of VC headquarters, right? So um, if you're not, if you're not living in Silicon Valley, right, which has not been a huge hotbed of minorities, um, you know, uh, uh, then you don't get funding anyway, right? If, and I grew up in Wisconsin, no one funds anyone from Wisconsin. Um, so there is some good news in that both the entrepreneurship funding has shot up. Um, and more than we thought, and Zoom seems to be helping a little bit. So there is the good news piece there, right? Um, we don't know what the effect yet on women and minorities are, but that can't be necessarily bad that that's happening. 
Um, and so, and I, 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 so we don't know the whole picture, but at least on the side of like, is this causing a disaster? I, we thought it would and unpicking why not, it'll be a thousand thesis projects, but it's, an, but it's been different than we expected. On the second question about women starting companies, yes, I mean, there is, so women start less companies than men. And we've, some of that is about this, about home and about, um, the duties women have. But it turns out that in countries with better childcare, where there's mandatory leave or support, state supported childcare, there's a great study, um, um, uh, that looked at this. Women actually start even less ventures, but they start more high growth ventures. So there is some, there are some aspects about how selection, women start more companies in retail. Women start more companies are, you know, in areas where there's not as much VC funding. So there is a sourcing kind of issue. And I think that STEM is part of that, right? Women are now making up a higher percentage of STEM. So maybe that'll shift, but there is a difference in the kind of companies women have started, both because women have been forced into entrepreneurship at a higher rate, but also because of preferences. Um, and a desire for entrepreneurial activity that I think we see shifting also. So some of this is internalized about what women start, and some of this is because of the kind of opportunities that are out there. Um, you know, one of the big breakthroughs has been the birth of more consumer and retail-oriented startups. Wharton has tons of these now, um, and those are more female-friendly historically. So, you know, we're back to this kind of complicated witch's brew of, like, what are people starting? What examples are they looking for? Um and so I think that this idea of like more women participation in STEM might lead to more female startups as well. And I want to go back to something Melissa said that I've talked a lot about venture capital, but like that's a very small piece of funding. 2% of companies get VC, right? The vast majority are getting other forms of fundraising, and it's important to not overlook those as we move forward. So I guess the overall picture is the pandemic is not as grim, though the gender effects may turn out to be grim. We just don't know yet. And that it is true that women start different companies at different rates than men. And when that catch up explain, will explain some of the gap closing, we don't know yet either. So Frederick, do you want to chime in here? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I, I do have some, I mean, my, my big concern right now, it kind of comes down to sort of what we're seeing happening with, with a lot of the, the wealth, right, in the country and what these closing of businesses or people losing jobs mean, right? The the cushion that women often, you know, would-be women entrepreneurs and founders might have could be declining significantly, which could impact their ability to get off the ground. And so a lot of these conversations we're having around how do we help start and facilitate and enable the early onset success, if we don't continue to push that and, and do it. We, we actually are in an environment where we need more of that. We need that in a greater degree than we've ever seen it because the need is that great. And I think we have to be very purposeful with ensuring that folks can fail forward. Um, you know, obviously in venture, we think about that all the time. Failure is, 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 is a big part of tech, uh, venture, you know, VCs. I mean, over half my portfolio, you know, that a fund's going to invest in is likely to fail, right? Um, and so we have to have this ethos of failing forward. But when you extract and you look at folks who might go to a bank to get funding, um, their credit could be hit when they have a business that fails, if they didn't have equal access to, because they didn't have relationships to PPP and government lending, you know, that, that was sort of being provided, uh, it makes it that much more difficult than when they fail. It isn't as easy to fail forward and start up again. And we've got to start to think about how do we equip, you know, not only, you know, the, the entire kind of country of entrepreneurs that, you know, right now are struggling, how do we equip them to be able to get back up and, and build back those businesses to get the, middle class uh, and, and and a big part of our economy up and running and working again. And so, you know, my hope is that we start to talk about that. Like, how do we enable that failing forward? How do we make sure this doesn't become a black mark that prevents, you know, folks for the next 10 years to be able to, to make any positive upswings that they might have seen over the last 10 years? 
Um, and then I think, you know, the other piece, you know, while, while there's certainly good news, right, on venture and tech continuing to, to, to move and, and, you know, work as an industry during COVID, I would say, I mean, there are concerns around whether, you know, are, are these just bigger and bigger rounds that are happening? Are we just putting more dollars behind fewer com companies as the IPO has moved private effectively, right? And so, you know, what are really, what's really happening when we unpack, you know, the, the, the deals happening and are they being distributed? But I agree with you, Professor Malik. I mean, we are seeing good things. I mean, I'm seeing more deals happening across the country. I'm seeing more competition in ecosystems. I never saw it. Um, and I think that is due to sort of COVID and, and the rapid adoption of web uh, and Zoom and technologies like this. But, you know, we still have a lot of work to do to make sure that, you know, once we get out of COVID, we don't just revert right back to the old bad processes and practices that, you know, themselves have, you know, as you put it, you know, if you're not within three to five miles of Sand Hill, good luck uh, fundraising and getting dollars. Yeah, so one more, um, maybe slightly not happy question <laughs> before I help us end on a, on a happy note. Um, and, and as I read these two questions, it again reminds me of the things that we say about why there aren't uh, people aren't mentoring black leaders and helping them to become senior executives. And it's, it's this word called risk that always makes me uh, nutty. <laughs> so uh, we recently read an article that talked about black VC practitioners um, who thought that they were unable to take risks on black founders. And so there's that, right? And then there's this idea that female businesses are in lower growth industries um, and while black business models were described as risky. So this idea of risk, I think, is something that people, the audience is trying to reconcile and they're interested in your thoughts on this, just broadly speaking. Melissa, I'm going to turn it to you since you kept turning it back to everybody else. I knew I, knew I could answer that last question. So maybe there's a couple of things. I mean, I think risk is inherent in everything that we do. And so mm -hmm. I think it really is less about risk and more about risk tolerance. And I mm -hmm. think that there are certain sectors that are naturally risk tolerant. I mean, I've started in investment banking, uh, but banking is probably one of the least tolerant in most regulated areas that you just can't do certain kinds of things. So I do want to make a distinction that I think certainly within the financial services sector, fintech sector, there is risk aversion at all costs. And, and sometimes it becomes overweighted for all the wrong reasons. So, so I do want to say there's risk and there's risk tolerance. I think part of this risk aversion or, or low risk tolerance for black entrepreneurs is because there aren't a lot of success stories. Let's, let's be honest. Um, and so I think when people even say like low, uh, low revenue businesses, well, yeah, less than 20% of all black people are in tech. I think it's coming, but we know the trajectory of tech companies takes a lot longer. And so I think the question is, what is the right size? Will a lot of the businesses that I see become unicorns? Probably not. Will they be stable 100, 200 million dollar businesses once they are, you know, distributed through several thousand chains between the markets? Absolutely. And we've seen that with a company like B and Honeypot. Um, and, and then, unfortunately, we saw what happened when she was put out there as a case study, the backlash of how dare you profile a black woman. And I thought it was going to be because she was talking about feminine products. But the backlash around the fact that she was black was just overwhelming. And so I do think that the risk is really all about perception. And I would say lack of a, a, a rock or a cornerstone to say, no, it, it, we can because there's these examples. And unfortunately, we don't have a lot of examples. Um, and I think, you know, Fred, Fred may know a little bit more, but we don't have a lot of exits uh, amongst black founders, right? Remember, they all fit on one page in a magazine. There were like 30 something of them. And so that's not going to change the risk tolerance. 
One other thing that I will say, though, in, in terms of trying to pivot slightly and say, how do we solve for this? I, I do think one challenge that I've actually shared with Frederick is, as we've seen some of these new funds come on the stage, they're still not run by women. And so I do think that we have to recognize that there's an intersection, but also a friction between gender and race. And, yeah. and so I think if we really want to talk about Black women, that becomes a slightly more complex conversation because nothing against guys, but there's going to be a pattern recognition and there's going to be a need to understand how to, you know, I, I, when, when B was raising money, she's like, it was as soon as I started talking about feminine products, God was like, I don't know anything about that. I can't help you. And I do think that we tend, because we don't have lots of access to capital, we tend to pick businesses that we know. A lot of our beauty uh, entrepreneurs are because they were mixing up a batch of something in their, in their house. Or when you think about Lip Bar, Melissa Butler is because she couldn't find the right colors. And so we oftentimes create businesses out of need, but those are not shared needs when it comes to the investor. So I think it goes back to what Fred and I are saying is people have got to get uncomfortable. We have got to do a better job of documenting success to be able to dispel the myth of risk. And I think we've got to do a better job, in all fairness, of defining risk because it's something that's been very subjective in financial markets. And we've got to really hone it in so that we don't overweight and just kick people out when indeed they were on the right path. All right. I'm going to stop the risk conversation there and we're going to do a 30 second speed round. Each of each, each of the three of you gets 30 seconds to help our students feel optimistic as they're thinking about potentially entering this space or going and working for, for one of your, your founding companies. Um, what advice do you have for our students who are very much eager to be change agents and want to make an impact in this space? Uh, 30 seconds of advice, starting with Frederick. Default to action. Um, you know, you can do way more than you think you can do and consistent effort you know, actually moves mountains. Uh, it's shocking. Um, and I think we often underestimate the risk reward uh, of, of doing action. And we often just sit or hope someone else is doing it or think someone else must be doing it. But there's no reason you can't be the, the change agent. And if anything I've learned with Black VC and the work, you know, uh, so many of us have done, you know, we realized we could be the change agents ourselves as long as we worked together. Um, and I think, you know, that's true for everyone, you know, in, in the proverbial classroom watching as well. Hey, Ethan, your turn. So speaking to the Wharton people out there, uh, I would just say, can you hear me? Okay. I'm getting echo myself, but you can hear me. All right. Okay. Okay. So, uh, um, so I would say that the good news is that once you get past some of those initial barriers of getting access that, um, there's a lot of willingness to change, right? So we talked about allies before. I think a lot of people are trying to figure out how to be allies. They're thinking about these things and they really do want to fund more black and female founders. They're listening to the research, they're understanding this and the barriers are less if you're coming from Wharton, if you've got connections through the things that Melissa and Fred are creating, these are real sources of change and that you shouldn't be afraid because you hear all of these stories because you will have barriers to overcome. But I think that there is some... There are people there who are trying to help. And I think if you can get through and get the warm introductions that these communities are making, I've been hearing very good things from my students who've had experiences. I was hearing four years ago, I had female founders who were told me, two of them told me that they were asked what kind of birth control they were using when they're pitching VCs, like wow. legitimately. I don't hear those stories anymore in the same way. So change is happening. Um, it's just not necessarily in, you know, as fast as we'd like, but I don't think you should be so afraid of that this is that there's, you know, there's a lot of risk in entrepreneurship, regardless of where you are. And I think plunging forward and bias towards action is exactly good advice. Hey, Melissa, closing words. 
I'm still in a little bit of shock about the birth control. Um, I would say three things. Leverage your social capital and privilege. I want to echo what Ethan said. You sit in one of the best institutions, and I know we're surrounded by amazing support. So don't look, don't leave it behind. Use it and leverage it moving forward. I think the second thing, which we've all talked about, is you got to get comfortable being uncomfortable, right? The only thing that's constant is change. So you've got to be willing to be uncomfortable. And it doesn't mean you have to be uncomfortable to the 100th degree, but it's going to ebb and flow in terms of how you want to be a part of this larger ecosystem. And the final thing is, is know that investment Investing and being an entrepreneur is imperfect. And so if you are a perfectionist, then this is definitely not your path. Uh, but, the, but the role of imperfection allows people to fall and get back up and to point, fail forward and still have an opportunity. Um, so that's what I would say. And, and I'm sorry, mostly have fun. I mean, I will say Fred and I have a lot of fun on our calls. Have fun. Like life is too short to take it that serious. This is one of many things you could all be doing. Have fun. Absolutely. Thank you, Professor Ethan Malik. Thank you, Frederick. Thank you, Melissa. And thank you, Georgia. This has been such an insightful, incredibly rich um, experience, I think, for, for all of us. And I think each of us has learned something new today. And I look forward to staying connected to, to you all in this conversation. Thanks to all who joined us today. I hope you found it fascinating as well. Look forward to hearing your thoughts, especially those who are in my class. Everybody have a great evening, great afternoon. Bye now. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.